we've been exploring here through the feast, at least as far as uh, the background of types of the leaders that would be in the end time. And it gives us a little clearer picture of some of the things that must go on and must happen and some of the hurdles perhaps that we'll face and some miracles that God will do. And some say, well, you didn't just talk about the wolf and the lion lying down with the lamb and millennial, but I truly believe that the church is going to experience a mini-millennium or a microcosm of the millennium in the last few years before Christ returns, because he talks about uh, all the blessings that will occur in the latter days, which we've been over many times. So really discussing the things that are about to happen to the church, which will be a type of the millennium to come under the direct rule of Christ, is a very important thing for us to consider. And no one understands this, brethren. They just don't. Uh, God has given us some knowledge and information and understanding that has not been disseminated uh, anywhere that I know of. So it's good to get it on tape uh, and out there on the website for any who might pick up on it and want to, uh, to look into some things. At any rate, <clears throat> we're coming down to uh, discussing Joshua and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah because there they are directly tied to the two witnesses of the book of Revelation. Uh, so today, I wanted to go back to the book of Ezra, where those two had an original situation, much as Elijah and Elisha uh, did, as Moses did, uh, the, the real-life beings who did certain things in the past, whom God brings forward in type to the end time with some similar responsibilities uh, to accomplish here right at the end before Christ returns. So the book of Ezra is set at a time when they were coming out of the Babylonian captivity and had a job to do, and that was to build the temple. You know, it had been destroyed and by Nebuchadnezzar. That's one of the fasts of the book of Zechariah that we keep in commemoration of the raising, the, the burning of the temple. So they were coming back to rebuild. The timing of the book of Ezra, Ezra is around 538, 539, 538, uh, down to about 516 or 515. The commentaries are a little unclear uh, in dating. Uh, but there was a an interruption in the building of the temple with Ezra and those who uh, were overseeing it. And that happened for, oh, 14 to 17 years, and then it was resumed. So I don't know what that portends for this time. I don't think there's room for that long a discrepancy or an interruption. But uh, I thought... I came up with a really interesting number. I have no idea what it means uh, at this point, but uh, just on a whim, I took the years 516 and 515 where the temple was apparently finished to the best they, the scholars can determine. And if you add 2520 to that, you come up to 2016. <laughs> I don't know what that means. But the seven times punishment of Israel, uh, they were blessed when they came out of Babylon after the, uh, the captivity there. And then they were blessed in building the temple. But it's ironic that that 2520 comes so close to where we sit today. Um, I don't know whether it has any meaning or not. I might explore it a little bit and play with it. But that was just something that I was doodling this morning when I was looking at the time that Ezra was written, and uh, just did that. So, for what it's worth, department, let's put it that way. That's not a prophecy. It doesn't maybe mean anything, but then you never know. This spring could be a lot different than what we're looking at right now in terms of the whole world situation and the church situation and everything else. Uh, 
but that remains to be seen. Anyway, let's get into Ezra then and get uh, a feeling for what happened originally here. And it might give us some clues uh, about what is just in front of us. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. So Jeremiah had said, and uh, well, let's go back there and just read that because this starts out with that. Jeremiah 25 and verse 12. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Eternal, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. So you remember the story in Daniel that the uh, Belshazzar had partied with the temple vessels, and there was a handwriting on the wall. That was 2520, wasn't it? Uh, so, uh, Belshazzar was killed that very night. The Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Persians. Chapter 29 and verse 10 of Jeremiah. For thus says the Eternal, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work, word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So we'll find here that according to what Jeremiah had said, Cyrus the king is making a proclamation, uh, and he had been stirred up to do so. Thus says, verse 2, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, in a way, it seems strange that a... Persian king would have been given commission by God to say that he was to build a house for God at Jerusalem. Now, it is almost without question that this Cyrus was the son of Esther, who had married the king of Persia. And she knew the story, or he knew the story of the Jews. I'm sure his mother and his uncle had trained him pretty well uh, to know what was to be. And also uh, realized that Daniel himself, having worked with Nebuchadnezzar, then was still there during the reign of Cyrus. So it is very probable, I would think, that Daniel had told Cyrus of the prophecies of Jeremiah, and had shown him that the temple was to be rebuilt, and Cyrus would have been amenable to the idea, having been coached by his mama all his life anyway. So it is kind of a natural thing. Now, he said God charged him to do it, and he was taking overall credit for it. But as we get into the story, we will find that Cyrus was not really involved in the building other than saying it needed to be done, then assigning someone to go do it. There's another account of this in Isaiah 44. I think we should examine for a moment. Because this is in the section that has to do with the early Philadelphia church between Isaiah 40 and 55, right through that area, which we will get to. But this is particularly notable here. <clears throat> Verse 26 of Isaiah 44, uh, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, that says to Jerusalem, uh, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. So God is saying that there will be one who will say those things. Now notice a specific quote that says to the deep, this is God speaking, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Uh, God dried up the Jordan. 
He dried up the Red Sea for that matter. So God can command and these things will happen. So he's, he's showing his view is that the decayed places of Jerusalem and the cities of Judah will be raised. And the one who is saying this is the one who can dry up rivers and cause you to cross them so that you can be in the promised land in the first place. So in that context, he calls upon his own power and authority. And then he says, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So this is an end-time prophecy of the end-time church, and there is a Cyrus figure here brought forward from 500 B.C. who would say that this was to be done. Now, I ran into a man, or he came to us some years ago, who claimed to know where the true Jerusalem was. And I did not at that point know (laughs) I knew where the promised land was, I knew where Zion was, but it never occurred to me to question, well then where's Jerusalem? It's an automatic, easy connection to make, is it not? If there's Zion, Jerusalem has to be nearby. Uh, So, because they're mentioned together in the Bible all the time. Now, This individual showed me the site, and I think nearly all of you have been there by now, to see uh, the way it's laid out, to see some petroglyphs, to see that it's straight north of Zion, and so on. I won't go into all of that. We went through quite a lot of it at the feast in 2012. But this is a man who is, in many ways, should I say every way, I suppose, unchristian and does not know God. And in fact, in Isaiah 45, it says twice that the man who does this does not know God. And having been around him quite a bit over the last few years, I can attest that he has no clue who God is. So, uh, a lot of people have a lot of negative feelings toward him, and I understand that because there's a lot there that is truly ungodly, and we'll not go into that more. But I do want to, in the light of chapter 1, verse 2, reiterate something that man said to me not long after I met him. We had gone up and uh, seen the sites that he was speaking of, and it was not but probably, I don't know, I don't keep a diary of these things, but Two or three or four weeks later, I was sitting in his house, and he just made a comment. He was talking about that area being the true Jerusalem, and then he said, the temple must be built right here in Iron County, and the Jerusalem must be built. Now, I was familiar with Isaiah 44 at that time, But it never put it together with anything. I just knew it was there for some future purpose, that a Cyrus would show up. And here was someone who had showed me the place that I am 99 point whatever percent convinced is the true original site of Jerusalem. Very desolate. No one lives there, as the scriptures say. And right out of the blue, he just said, the temple must be built right here in Iron County. And my jaw kind of hit my knee and dribbled onto the floor, it felt like, because I recognized it as a direct quote from Isaiah 44. Just as this original Cyrus here had said that. Now, is the man who said that to me The Cyrus of Isaiah 44, time will tell. And a lot of people at the moment have a lot of really nasty attitudes toward him, and sometimes so do I. So I'm not talking here about lifestyle. I'm not talking about the negative part of the man's life. I'm talking about uh, 
whomsoever God might choose to do something, no matter who and what he is. God does choose that kind of man to do a lot of things. I think it's Daniel 4, verse 16 maybe, that says, God sets over the nations the basest of men. He has been doing that for a long, long time. So when you see leaders ruling over nations, you can pretty well assume that they are going to be uh, base in their character, in their procedures, and in their lives. So whatever we might have against an individual now, I think we need to put on the back burner and wait and see what God does, because that's all that matters. If he indeed is not the one, and that quote just came out of left field somewhere uh, and means nothing, then someone else will come along and say the same thing and will do the things that need to be done. But that was directly what is said in Isaiah 44 and here in verse 2, and it came from a man who is not a part of the church, never has been, I hope someday might be, whether it's in the millennium or the great white throne judgment or whatever it is. Anyway, he said that God had charged him to build a house at Jerusalem. Verse 3, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the eternal God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So he said, I'm looking for volunteers. It has been brought to my attention that I am to build this temple, and I need volunteers to go do it. So who will go up to Jerusalem and do that? And he recognized that the God of Judah and of Israel was the true God. I think he had probably learned that from his mother and the story of Purim, the story of the Jews being uh, supposedly going to be all killed off, and then God turning it around and allowing them to kill their enemies. Uh, that story he knew. So he was familiar with the true God of Israel from both his mother and from Daniel, and then from a prophecy or two in Jeremiah as well. And who knows what else, but that's a good start toward knowing what he was talking about. Verse 4, And whoso remains in any place where he sojourns, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus is saying, I'm looking for volunteers, and if you decide to leave where you are and come be a volunteer, then hopefully the people in your area where you live will support you as you go to do this. They'll send whatever you need to get you there to get the job done. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the eternal which is in Jerusalem. I'll refer us here to Haggai where when Joshua and Zerubbabel uh, begin to prepare to build the temple of God here in the end time, God says he will stir up the people to come. He will stir whom he will. It isn't men stirring them, although they might be used in part through signs and wonders, as we shall see. It is God who does the stirring, and he will get the people he wants there to build the house of the eternal. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods and beasts and precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. So they did what Cyrus asked. They provided everything that was needed to send the volunteers to Jerusalem. Verse 7, now Cyrus put his money where his mouth was. Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the eternal, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. And of course, they remained there during that seven-year captivity, 
And then Belshazzar had said, hey, we're having a party here tonight, uh, maybe an orgy, whatever. Uh, let's get some of those golden vessels out here and drink out of them. Well, that was kind of the last straw for Belshazzar. But those were still there, and Cyrus the Persian now, the son of Esther, was the king. So he was willing to turn those loose and send them back where they came from. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of uh, Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Uh, Zerubbabel in Persian is Sheshbazar. So uh, Zerubbabel was the key figure here that Cyrus looked to to give those vessels to. Uh, this is the number, 30 chargers of gold, 1,000 chargers of silver, 29 knives, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, 1,000. And then when he added it all up, all the vessels of gold, of silver, and of silver were 5,400. That's an awful lot of temple vessels. 5,400 pieces, and I suspect that they are still hidden secretly in a place where they will soon be discovered in order to be put into the temple. And it even says in Isaiah 45 that uh, the hidden treasures of darkness and the riches of secret places would be brought forth by Cyrus, the end-time Cyrus. So, at some point, they will be shown to whoever that Cyrus is and will be brought forth to be put into the temple. Then it talks about those who left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to go through all the names. Uh, they are listed here. But most people stayed in Babylon at that point, And these came out. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 2, though, it does say that these came, are those which came with Zerubbabel, with Yeshua or Joshua, Nehemiah, and so on. <clears throat> and then it goes on down and names the tribes and the children that came from them, the towns they came from and all. Uh, and that isn't, I don't think, necessarily at this point important to the story although there is going to be a gathering again <clears throat> of some people to come here in the end time to build the latter temple. We'll get into a discussion of whether that's only spiritual or a physical temple as well a little later on as we get into the story in Haggai and Zechariah. But here, this is background. This is what happened then <clears throat> for us to consider as we consider the possibility that we may ourselves be called upon to help build a temple. And knowing the story ahead <clears throat> helps prepare us. Anyway, verse uh, 62 of chapter 2, These sought their register among those who were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Speaking of some here who didn't have their name written in the records as having come from Judah or Israel. Uh, they were not found, therefore were they as polluted, put from the priesthood. So some came to volunteer, and they were not permitted, because they were not in proper condition, proper genealogy, to help build the temple. Now, in the end time, we know from New Testament uh, scriptures, many of them, that God makes no difference between Jew and Gentile uh, in terms of being a part of the kingdom of God. Nor is it important, I don't think, by any means in terms of building the latter temple because we are all one and the same, spiritually speaking. There is no race. There is no delineation made whatsoever between us. Uh, if we are candidates for the Bride of Christ, members of the spiritual body of Christ, the Church. All are the same. Now, there may be spiritual reasons why some would be turned down here at the end as well. 
because of attitudes, because of approach, because of disbelief, because of sin. There could be quite a few reasons why those in charge would say, you will not be included. We need to be as close to God as we can and try to uh, qualify so that we might be included. That's what we need to be doing. <clears throat> and the Tirshatha said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till they stood up, till there stood up a priest with Urim and with Thummim, someone to make a decision, because sometimes it may have been hard to tell whether someone was qualified to be a priesthood or in the priesthood or to handle the holy vessels. Isaiah 52 tells us to be clean who bear the vessels of the eternal. And that's way on down the line with the New Testament church. So uh, that was addressed here and will be dressed, addressed when it comes time to build the temple. Are people truly in the church of God? Are they truly there for the right reasons or not? Verse 64, the whole congregation together was 42,303 score. I scratched my head this morning when I went back over this, having just yesterday gone through the story of Elisha and the story of the two she-bears who came out and tore 42 children, precisely 42. And here you have 42,000 who showed up to build the temple. Now, Elisha is a type of Zerubbabel, or of Moses in the end time as well. Uh, why was it 42 children? And why does that number come up again right here, 42,000? Now, it adds 360 to that, which is an interesting number in itself. There were 360 days in a year back then. So you have 42,000 represented, and then the numbers of a year represented in, as well, and the exact number of those who came up. Uh, is there some connection there? That's, uh, I was saying that yesterday. Is there, is there some connection to the end? And then this morning I read this, and I thought, there's 42 again. Only it's a thousand times 42. And I, I don't know what to do with that at this point, and maybe nothing, but uh, it, it is intriguing at least, and it might be worth putting some thought to, because we know those types all go together and all fit to one degree or another. And it's amazing when you read back over and you read again and you read again, you'll make connections that you missed before, that, uh, that have been there all along. And besides them, then, there were servants and maids of uh, 7,337. And there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. So we're going to have music while we build the temple, it would appear. Uh, that sounds good. Their horses were 736, their mules 245. I don't know why that uh, statistic is added, but God has a reason for telling the story, and perhaps at some time... Maybe 2020, looking back, we'll say, oh, I see now why there were that many. Because everything is done with a plan and a purpose. That God is very, very specific and very detailed. How did he make a hummingbird if he wasn't very specific and very detailed? So he is. And then it talks about their camels and so on. Uh, verse 68, some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Eternal, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in its place. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says that this verse indicates that they were willing to put up money and materiel for the temple before they even secured their own lodging before they pre prepared a place for themselves to stay. I think that's kind of an interesting uh, concept, that when it goes time to go to Jerusalem, our main focus will be build a temple. And our own personal accommodations may not mean much. Of course, according to Isaiah 51, he will give us Edenic conditions by then, and uh, you might not need much shelter. 
So we'll see how that goes, but the scriptures all tie together. Anyway, verse 69, they gave after their ability under the treasure of the work three score and one thousand grams of gold and five thousand pound of silver and one hundred priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So they must have gone back, some of them, to the towns and villages that they had been taken from when they had gone into captivity. And there they were, ready to get to work and giving offerings to do so. In chapter 3, when the seventh month was come, that's when Feast of Tabernacles starts, or is, first day of the seventh month, the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So wherever they had gone, back maybe to their own villages, when trumpets arrived, they all went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem hadn't been built back yet, and the temple hadn't been built, but they gathered there because it was the place that God had chosen way back in the days of Joshua where the peace were to be kept. So that's where they went, as one man. In other words, they were united together uh, with purpose in mind, focus in mind. Then stood up Joshua, or Yeshua, same name, the son of Josadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and built at the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, I find it interesting here that the uh, leadership had been given basically to Zerubbabel or Sheshbazar by Cyrus when he gave them the temple vessels. And generally speaking, through Ezra and through uh, Haggai and Zechariah, you will find Zerubbabel mentioned first and then Joshua. And in fact, in Zechariah 3, it discusses Joshua ahead of Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel and both of them then in Zechariah 4. But in a few instances, Joshua took the lead in what was being done. And I think that the this is an interesting one right here, that he, of course, Joshua in, the, in Zechariah 3 is listed as the high priest who would take leadership in terms of the priesthood and building the altar. But what he was doing was setting in order or restoring the altar and the way of worship, the proper uh, delineation of how things should be done. And is, it that, is not that what <clears throat> Elijah in uh, Malachi 4 is tasked with doing? is restoring all things. So when Joshua here first took the lead, it was to restore the altar, to restore the sacrifices in the way that they had been done in times past. To restore, if you will, all things to the way they ought to be. That was the job brought forward from the Elijah. And we saw that, did we not? How... The priests of Baal were there, and there was improper worship and improper belief and improper doctrine. And he killed all the prophets of Baal and set order back, or restored worship of God in the proper order of things. So we see that being repeated here. So he took the lead, along with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel. So they do pass it back and forth somewhat. The Zerubbabel is clearly the leader uh, throughout. But sometimes Joshua was to take the lead. I think we'll see that again when we talk about some end-time prophecies. Uh, verse 3, And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries, and they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the eternal even burnt offerings, morning and evening. So they were restoring what had been done in the past, but they were fearful of the people around them. 
Now, do you think that everyone is going to be in equanimity with those who start building the temple in Jerusalem here in the original promised land? Or will there be those around who won't like that idea, uh, who will think that's not the thing to do, and will persecute and try to stop what is happening? But God says He'll be a wall of fire and a defense, and I think the chariots of fire and the angels will be there as well, maybe not visible, but they'll be there. That's the ancient story, and it fits here in Ezra, and it will fit again, because there will be enemies to anyone who tries to do what God wants done. Then they kept the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 4, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of the day required. So they stayed for the feast. Here we are, just finishing it up. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, uh, both of the new moons and the set feasts of the eternal. So there it shows again that it was reinstituted, restored, and they went forward from that day forth, keeping all of the holy days, the new moons, and the various things that were in the law of Moses that should have been being done, but were not able to be done when they were in captivity in the captivity of Babylon. So verse six from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings to the eternal, but the foundation of the temple of the eternal was not yet laid. So they came, they got things in order, uh, they worked out various things, but they hadn't actually started the building yet. Some preparation time, some lead time, some restoration time, if you will, was needed to get things in order in the society and in the government so that then everyone would be in accord with God and could have God's blessing when they began to build. In the end time, I'm sure, time is needed for restoration, for getting things together, for preparing uh, so that it can then be done. Verse 7, they gave money also to the masons, to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil, unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Haggai says, go to the woods, uh, go to the mountains, and cut trees and bring wood to build a temple. So that's what they did here. Haggai reiterates part of this story, but it is in very much an end-time prophecy in the, the, uh, the Minor Prophets. So, what was done here was set for an example for those at the end to consider, and then it was brought forward in prophecy in Haggai and Zechariah to be done again. Verse 8, in the second year of their coming into the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of their brethren, the priests, the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Eternal. So they had to be twenty years of age to come and work, because that is the age of adulthood or accountability in the Bible. Our country has said it, depending on what you're doing, at age 18 or at age 21, uh, for voting or drinking or whatever it is at the moment. So they're not quite sure when you become an adult. depends on what you want to do. Uh, but with God, the age of 20 was when the parents were no longer uh, accountable, but the young man or woman was accountable to self for their own maturity, and as an adult. Then said Joshua with his sons and his brethren, here again he takes the lead, <coughs> uh, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So they began to get organized, organized people into crews, into different responsibilities. So he was in this sense being the foreman, of the circumstance, and took the lead in that. 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the eternal, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the eternal after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So, this was not then, and will not be, like building the Sears Tower in Chicago. This will be done with a restoration of the way of God. It will be done with glory to God. It will be done in concert with God and His wishes and His directions, because it's God's project. So, I think there's a clue there that we should have godly music to be played and to be enjoyed, because that was very clearly put forth in David, that in the Psalms, that those Psalms were to be sung to God. God's throne has singing there. The holy angels singing hallelujah to God. So when we perform any act for God, any building for God, if you will, we need to be singing glory to God, because it's His building, not ours. And that reminds us, does it not? It helps us keep our focus. That's why we sing some of the psalms at every Sabbath service that we have, is to have God worshipped in song. We're not just mouthing it. I hope we're paying attention to the words, because of the words of God recorded in the Psalms. And we're not just standing there going through it because it's there, but hopefully we're paying attention to the words that we're singing. Because many of them have an awful lot to do with the end time and with Zion and with Jerusalem and building and God blessing and God cursing and so on. <clears throat> There's an awful lot there in that hymn book. Now, verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping. So they were laughing and weeping, crying for joy. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard far off. In Isaiah 54, it talks about, in 55, it talks about people coming and singing and uh, dancing and so happy that God's church is going to be restored and His temple built. And here you see, I think, a connection between what I've called the former temple under Herbert Armstrong uh, and the latter temple that will be built, and there will be old men who will be able to recognize what was worldwide at its best and what is the best of the latter temple that will be built. And Haggai even says, doesn't the glory of the latter temple far outshine the glory of the former temple? So what is to be built is to be built with a great deal of restoration that will have occurred from Herbert Armstrong until that time, because he was not the Elijah. He restored some things, but certainly not all things. He died not knowing where the promised land was. He died not knowing where Jerusalem or Zion was. He died not knowing a lot of different doctrines. So, he did not restore a lot of things. Those have to be restored, and more before this can be done, because it needs to be done in a holy way. The vessels that are carried have to be carried by clean people. Uh, we saw here how they sorted some out. So things have to be done in a right and in a proper, a holy manner if we're to be involved in doing the work of God at the end. Chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built at the temple unto the eternal God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up here. Uh-huh. Sure you did. 
But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us to build a house to our God, but we build ourselves together, or we ourselves together will build to the eternal God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Do you suppose that there will be some who show up who claim to be on the right side and try to join in and get involved with what God is doing? I expect so, based on this. And they will have to be turned aside. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. So they did everything they could to stop it and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they fought it. Didn't want it to happen. Well, I, I think this is very illustrative for us of things to come. And it was stopped for a while. Uh, then, <coughs> after that, the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation. So king changed, and now they wrote an accusation against the Jews who were trying to build the temple of God. Tried to stop it. Kind of reminds me in a minor way of the lady at planning and zoning. When we first went down there and had a meeting of, oh, five or six of our men. And uh, the first thing she said is, well, I understand there's some guy up there trying to start a cult. And then she laughed and says, but that's okay with us, ha, 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 very sarcastically. And they have tried to thwart us all the way through, putting various things on us to turn us into either a subdivision or a trailer park. A subdivision, well, first of all, they gave us an agricultural exemption. You may know the story. And then they withdrew that arbitrarily because we weren't supposed to have this many houses on one piece of land, we found out. So they were going to give us an exemption. Then she withdrew it. Said, ah, that's too many people there for an exemption. So then they began to fight us, and we didn't have the money to have a subdivision, uh, so we would just become a trailer park. But through the years, they keep changing who is in charge of the project, and they're always changing the rules on us. Everybody that comes in gives us a different set of things they want us to do to qualify as a trailer park. And they don't go by necessarily the rules that are written down. Uh, they have their own ideas. And then they force us, push us to comply. So that's made it take a lot longer than it would have. And at one point, they even took us to court. And uh, we barely survived that. But they had lawyers there. And the county lawyers perjured themselves over and over and over again, lying about what was going on. So it's kind of been <clears throat> um, a bit of a rope around our neck through this whole time. Now, I, I think that once we start building the true temple in Jerusalem, there will probably be some opposition that comes that's a great deal worse than what we faced. But it just kind of reminds me of people who are trying to frustrate what you're doing. I understand where they're coming from. They've hated the polygamous cities of Hilldale and Colorado City and Centennial for years and years. And they even tried to basically kill them off in 1953. And uh, that massacre, they call it, uh, failed, and then the government in Phoenix got in trouble for harassing the citizens of the state. But they are doing everything they can to get rid of the polygamists over there. And when this lady at PNZ uh, saw we were starting a little religious group out here near Colorado City, she immediately went on the warpath, uh, and even to some degree said so. <clears throat> so we've had to deal with that in trying to prepare and be ready to do what God has ahead for us to do. But I doubt if it's the last and probably not the worst of what we will face. Why do we need a wall of fire around us at some point if somebody wasn't giving us an awful time? But, hey... 
Chariots of fire are there. The wall of fire is there. We don't have to worry. Just as they simply needed to trust in God, even though they, I'm sure, were somewhat troubled and concerned. <clears throat> anyway, they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes, and he told them, uh, they told him that this rebellious and bad city would set up the walls, and then they'd quit paying taxes, and he'd have to reconquer them all over again. And he didn't like that, so he says, don't do it anymore. Stop it. Uh, it says in verse 21, Give you now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall given, be given from me. And then they did cease, in verse 24, to build on the house. So it ceased to the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Those commentaries don't know, but they estimate either 14 or 17 years in that. It's not known exactly how long. But let's move on. Uh, then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even to them. So Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets who wrote the minor prophets' books to bring this story forward to the future. But it was not Haggai and Zechariah who were doing the work. It was Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people who had come to do it. But they prophesied. Anyway, it says, Then rose up Zerubbabel and Joshua and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. So they had not been given permission to start up again. But Haggai and Zechariah came in and told them, this is God's wish, do it. So, they started doing it. Uh, I think I quoted Acts 5.29 yesterday. We must obey God rather than man. There comes a point where we don't follow the edicts of the governments around us, as we do in normal times, but we obey God and put Him first. So they started doing it. The same time came to them Tatmai, governor, on this side of the river, and another guy and their companions, and said to them, Who commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? So as soon as they got started again, <laughs> here was more opposition. Then said we to them after this manner, What are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease, till the matter came to Darius. So it was kind of a stalemate, and they went on building in spite of the opposition, and then it went to Darius. To Darius, I mean. Verse 7, they sent a letter to him wherein was thus written, To Darius, king, all peace. Be it known to the kingdom or to the king, that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God. It's probably is going to be called the house of the great God, church of the great God, which he builded with great stones and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goes fast on and prospers in their hands. Oh, set off all the red bells here. Then asked we those elders and said to them, Who commanded you to build this house to make up these walls? We asked their names also to certify you that we might write the names of the men that were the chief of them. So they probably wanted them killed. And thus they returned us this answer saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and build the house that was builded these many years ago which a great king of Israel builded and set up. But after that our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. So they cited God as their authority, which is what we'll have to do again. But in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon... Uh, the same King Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. So they did refer back to the original commission that Cyrus in chapter 1 had given them. And that he also had given them the vessels of gold and silver in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken and kept in Babylon. And that they were delivered to Sheshbazar or Zerubbabel in the verse 14. 
and said to him, Take these vessels, carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in his place. So he sent Zerubbabel with the temple vessels, said, Go build it, go do it. So Cyrus wasn't involved again in the building. He had the people properly qualified to do it, to do it. So he said, if it be uh, good to the king, make a search and find out if this is indeed the true history. So he did, and they found uh, the decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem in verse 3, and said, let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifice, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, gave the uh, dimensions uh, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the expenses be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple uh, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought again to the temple, which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and place them in the house of God. Uh, Verse 7, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. Leave them alone. And then he even added to it, made another decree that uh, tribute would be sent beyond the river with expenses that would be given to the men that they would not be hindered. Uh, Verse 9, and that they which that which they have need of, bullocks, rams, lambs, for burnt offerings, uh, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the appointment of the priests which are at Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. So feed them as they do this. God tells us in Isaiah 55 that we are to come and build a temple and we are to drink wine and milk without money. So God is going to provide, just as he did in the days of Cyrus, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet savors to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. (laughs) And then, if anybody gets in the way and does hinder these people, they are to be hanged from the timbers of their own house, and their house is to be made into a dunghill. So a pretty strong warning to leave them alone and let them get the job done. I think that will be done as well. Let's see, down in verse 15, The house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So they began working in the second year of Darius and finished in the sixth. So it took them about four years, once they really got with it, to build a temple. Uh, the time allocated as I see it, if you look at 2027, is the Jubilee from right now until December of 21 leaves us about six years to have the remnant come, to have this started, and to have the temple built. Will it take four years? I don't know. That's just what it took them. It, it does change uh, from age to age, but it's, but many of the details are very, very similar. Why tell the story back here if there weren't great similarities between it and what is to come? So uh, everything will not, I'm sure, be exactly the same. There's no King Artaxerxes, you know. Uh, there, there'll be differences, but it'll be the same basic story flow. Uh, Verse 18, they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the children of the captivity kept the Passover upon the fourteenth day of the first month. So it was finished, and soon after then was the Passover. It be interesting to see how that works out time-wise. Verse 21, the children of Israel were to come again out of the captivity, and all such as had separated themselves uh, unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the eternal God of Israel did eat. So 
God is only going to call those who are committed, who are dedicated to Him, to His way, to the laws of Moses, the laws of the Bible. We'll have no one there who does not. And they kept the feast in the days of unleavened bread seven days with joy, not eight, seven. Uh, For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I find that interesting that the king of Assyria was uh, well disposed to them. Because it talks about this happening in the end time in Isaiah and other places uh, during the time when the king of Assyria will come from the north and will have to flee from the king of Assyria uh, to Zion in order to do what needs to be done. And that the Assyrian will be whipped by God's people there in Micah 4 when he comes into our land. But it says the Assyrian there in Isaiah 9 or 10, wherever it is, I never quite remember. But uh, he will try to whip up on us like they did in Mitzrium for a short while and fail. And then it makes me wonder if they will be somewhat well disposed for a while until the little horn who is there for some years comes down and sets up the abomination of desolation and the tribulation starts. So, just some some interesting things to consider. Uh, I'm about to run out of time here. But let's get just a little more about Ezra. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, the son of these different people, I won't read all that, Uh, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses which the eternal God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the eternal his God upon him. It's very likely that Ezra uh, wrote down and canonized much of the Old Testament as well, but he was a ready scribe. And he came to Jerusalem, verse 8, in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, on the first day of the first month, began he to go up from Babylon, and he came to Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, about four months of travel. Uh, If that Babylon had been in the Middle East, four months gave him plenty of time to get to the Mediterranean and sail across the Atlantic, perhaps up the Rio Grande, which was navigable at that time, and to be here in four months. It would have been... He would have had to done an awful lot of dawdling had he gone to the Middle East Jerusalem from the other side of the Euphrates as we know it today. He could have traveled about three, four miles a day and had to just sit around. (laughs) It's not a four-month journey, in other words, by any means. Over here is about that. Anyway, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the eternal and to do it, not a hearer only, but a doer, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So a renewal of the things that needed to be done. And then there's the decree of Artaxerxes to do all of this and uh, to do what the God of heaven said to do. Uh, I don't think I'll go through the rest of this. Uh, They wound up separating from their Gentile wives and children Uh, because God had told them at that point not to intermarry, and they had. Uh, So they went through all that, trying to restore the things of God. But I I mainly wanted to do that portion, which had to do with uh, the building of the temple, some of their experiences, and how it came about, and who ordered it, because it does have very much to do with us here in the end time, and what will also be done. So we'll pick up another portion of the story probably this coming Sabbath, God willing. Well, I hate to see some of you leave and go back to homes for now. We've enjoyed having you here and we'll be happy to see you again. And We used to sing, some of you may remember, back in the field house in Big Sandy, God be with you till we meet again. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. 
at some point they decided that song was too Protestant and we kept singing it, but or, or quit singing it. But uh, I'll tell you, it was moving to come to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles and realize it would be a while before we saw each other again. But I know that God is going to gather His remnant soon and the people will come from all over the world that He stirs to build His temple. And it's going to be a very, very exciting time. And it's going to be a time that is similar to the millennium because God will give that kind of blessings to get it done and then use it as a light to the world during the time that a witness is made against Satan and against his society and culture. And God will have his people there as a light set on a hill, which Christ said we should be. And it will happen. So let's focus on God. Let's try to turn. Try. Try means I won't quite do it. Let's turn to Him with all our hearts and prepare ourselves that we can be clean and be prepared vessels or prepared to carry the vessels of the eternal because that is coming very, very soon now. And the whole church and the whole world will know it when it happens and it will be used to show that God is God. So be careful traveling and uh, God be with you till we meet again.